This podcast is brought to you by the Administrative Committee of the Presbyterian Church in America, promoting the unity, purity, and progress of the church. Learn more about the Administrative Committee and support its work at pcaac.org. This is Gifts and Graces. Each episode, we bring you a seminar, sermon, or discussion from church leaders across the country and around the world designed to promote the unity, purity, and progress of the church. All Christians have communion in each other's gifts and graces, says the Westminster Confession. So on this podcast, we help you and your church benefit from the gifts and graces of other parts of Christ's body. On this episode of Gifts and Graces, we get to hear from Robert Burns and Donald Guthrie on politics and ministry. Robert Burns is the pastor of spiritual formation at Church of the Good Shepherd in Durham, North Carolina. Donald Guthrie is professor of educational ministries at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. In this episode, they provide wisdom on navigating relational complexities that often arise when leading a church. This was originally recorded as a seminar delivered in June 2019 at the PCA General Assembly in Dallas, Texas. Let's listen to Robert Burns and Donald Guthrie as they offer advice on the politics of ministry. This is our new follow-up book to Resilient Ministry. Many of you are familiar with that work. I'll reference that in just a minute. Uh, This is a book on the politics of ministry. It basically zooms in on the fifth theme of our research uh, that resulted in resilient ministry. Uh, So that's sort of its placement, a little bit of background. Uh, More background, quickly. You see this here in the bottom corner, something called the Resilience Project. Uh, Since I've been at Trinity, I've been involved in an ongoing research uh, project called the Resilience Project. Uh, We'd like to say that we knew all about resilience when we uh, did the work and named the book uh, this many years ago. Uh, Resilience has become an incredibly, <laughs> incredibly rich, deep, hot thing in all the helping professions. Uh, you just can't uh, close your eyes and throw a rock and, and find somebody dealing with resilience in the literature and research and so forth in all the helping professions. Uh, those of you who are pastors, if you find the helping profession folk in your, in your congregation, talk to them about this topic and they will tell you lots of stories uh, about what's happening. One of the things we're trying to do in our project is trying to identify not just uh, sort of the themes as we did in Resilient Ministry, the themes within um, each sector of the helping professions, but but themes across, uh, things we have in common with all the helping professions. And there there are quite a few. We'll we'll talk just a little bit about a couple of them before we get to the politics stuff. So our time together for the hour is basically three parts. First is review and foundations. And then the second is kind of the, uh, the overview of the book. And then thirdly, we have a couple cases, one from the scripture and one from a church, to try to see what does this look like in, in practice. So those are the three, uh, three elements uh, broken down for you for the afternoon. Um, one of the things I, I probably want to mention now, and then we'll come up later, uh, one of the primary themes that we all have in common among all the helping professions is the challenge of young people getting traction. Everywhere you read, um, whether it's healthcare, uh, education of all kinds, uh, social work, um, professional counseling, everybody has in common that our young folks are having a real hard time figuring out how to get into the profession, but then how to get traction once they're in. That's same, obviously it's the same thing for pastoral ministry. Uh, this is striking to me. Uh, everybody has their generational moment. I think this is one of ours right now, in terms of how do we connect with one another, how do we find one another. But I will tell you that uh, that's a big thing, and, and everybody's trying to find secret sauce, and it's pretty hard <laughs> to figure out how to help young folks uh, get a handle on, uh, on how to help. They're willing to help, but they're trying to figure out who can help them help others. So keep that in mind as we talk about politics because one of the things that, as you can imagine, and for those of us of a certain age, this is a pretty vexing thing. Uh, You you didn't go to seminary to do the politics of ministry, but you sure do it every day, don't you? Um, 
you didn't go to seminary to go to meetings, but you go to a lot of meetings, don't you? You didn't go to seminary to figure out why Mrs. Smith is the most powerful being in the universe <laughs> in your church, but she is, isn't she? Because she's taught everybody Sunday school for a thousand years in your church. So she has far more power than you can ever ask or imagine as the senior pastor. Well, that, that's, that's the kind of stuff that we talk about in the book, both uh, theoretically and practically. So we hope this is helpful for you. Uh, we hope it, 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 maybe it names a few things. I know our common experience at the University of Georgia, Bob and I had uh, the same major professor at Georgia, a guy named Ron Severo, and uh, he just was a namer. He just named reality for us. He just named things that happened to us all the time. We didn't know they had names. Things like power and interest and negotiation. And we didn't know it was okay to talk about it out loud in, in, in mixed company. We didn't know this was something that we should be training seminarians. Uh, about uh, so that they didn't get their head chopped off the first two months in ministry. Um, but, that's, but that's the way it is. So our hope is that we're, we're redeeming this whole conversation. We're trying to shed some light on things that happen to us all the time so that we can think with the mind of Christ what it means to, uh, what it means to negotiate, what it means to negotiate power, what it means to negotiate uh, various kinds of interests and so forth, so that, uh, as we say, so that they align with those of Jesus Christ. So that's our hope. Okay? So a little bit of background first. Um, we, we start and middle and end uh, the, the story, the storyline of the Scripture. And uh, this is important for us, and we obviously it's, we know it's important for you too, so that, so that we all understand uh, where we situate ourselves in, in the sense of, uh, in our case, using the four chapters. Uh, four-chapter version of the storyline of Scripture. Um, and, and the thing to emphasize uh, that we've noticed over the years is, is the top line there. It's good news to good news. Uh, it's good news to good news. It's good news to good news. Amen? The Lord gets us all back. Uh, the Lord knows what he's doing. And uh, it's, it starts in the garden and ends in the garden city, and that's the good news to the good news. If you leave out those two bookends. I mean, it's just four chapters of the Bible, for heaven's sake. But if you leave them out, the whole story is just thrown up into the air, isn't it? So we always try to help our folk understand, however you describe this and depict this and so forth, we always want to tell folk that the Lord's gospel is a good news to good news story. Obviously, uh, central, Jesus Christ. Can I, can I bring up one? Yes, sir. Back to that. Just one, one real quick thing. Uh, something that, you'll, that we've noticed, and it, it grieves my heart to say this, but, but you know, we're taught in seminary about total depravity. But we're shocked when we go into the church and discover it. Okay? So I'm, I'm just pointing out you know, the, the rebellion and redemption. I'm, I just spent time last night with a dear brother who just got his head blown off in his church. And... Uh, so we're shocked when we see the reality of the brokenness of the world. And so to be able to understand these, these four quadrants and to really live them is critically important. I'll just mm. keep it at that. Yeah, thanks. This is the uh, Anglong Orchestra in Bandung, Indonesia. What in the world does that have to do with this? Well, it has everything to do with it because this is a, an incredible uh, uh, illustration of what a system looks like what a system looks like. And the most important thing to remember about all the stuff we're going to say is that, that we're taking a systems approach to thinking about this politics and ministry stuff. That is, if you, if you pull here, everything over here moves around. You, you can't just change the carpet in the church. It's, it's just not this isolated thing. It's connected to everything. You can't just change the time of Sunday school. It's connected to everything. You can't just do something new with Sunday night and have dinner. It's connected to everything. Everything is connected to everything. When I was in Indonesia recently, uh, I just had the wonderful privilege of attending uh, this concert by these folks. And if you can see, uh, this is an ancient instrument, actually, they've only recently rediscovered in Indonesia uh, called Anglung. And it's carved out of bamboo, one reed at a time. And it makes one note. Makes one note. So those young people line up all the notes like on a scale. It's like a handbell choir, basically. 
and they shake them at different intervals and different times according to the conductor and make incredible sounds. It's one of the most striking things I've ever seen in my life about harmony of systems. Harmony of systems. Well, politics of ministry has everything to do with harmony of systems. It has a lot to do with non-harmony, disharmony in systems, but it has a lot to do with what the Lord wants us to, uh, to think about in terms of harmony in systems. So think systems as we uh, think through together. Well, here's two systems of being the church. Mark Green said this at Lausanne in 2010. He said, we have a system where we recruit the people of God to use some of their leisure time to join the missionary initiatives of church-paid workers. That was his description of the system that we have. And that has implications, doesn't it? He argues, Mark argues, that the system we, we need is to equip the people of God for fruitful mission in all their lives. Now, you, you, don't, you don't not do at least some of this, but if you do this, you get this. Okay? As you'll see in a second, one of the things we, we discovered in our research in resilient ministry was that the healthy, the healthy pastors and pastors who are sort of at their most healthy do something called welcoming the gifted body of Christ. They're not afraid of it. They don't deny it. They don't say, no, 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 it's all about me. Actually, they welcome the gifted body of Christ. So again, this has everything to do with politics because the more you identify with, with this system, dear pastors, the, the more challenging it's going to be to equip the people of God for fruitful mission in all of their lives. These have, these have consequences. These have implications in terms of the system. I think Mark really uh, nailed it there as he described that. And, and, and by the way, if you are familiar with the London... Uh, Institute of Contemporary Christianity, I, I would encourage you to get online and look at the resources. I think Mark and his colleagues have done some of the best work on um, equipping uh, God's people for all of, all of life, all of God's mission. Just outstanding stuff. London Institute of Contemporary Christianity, LICC. Well, one of the other things we, we think about as we think about politics is um, something that came to us out of the leader's journey. Uh, really, really still helpful book um, all these years later. That's where this title of the slide came from, Think Systems, Watch Process, Ask Questions. And it helped us think about systems and that all congregations, ministries, organizations, well, everything's a system. Everything's connected. Now think of this, think of this as, a, as a continuum. Think of this as a continuum. And first think about anxious systems. And think about the fuel of an anxious system. The fuel of an anxious system is fear. Fear. Anxious systems just, just gorge themselves on fear. They're, they're afraid. They're afraid of everything. They're afraid of everybody. They're afraid of succeeding. They're afraid of failing. Uh, they're afraid of one another. They're afraid of outsiders. They're afraid of insiders. They're just afraid. The people in anxious systems are very afraid. The people in calm systems, or we'd say grace-based systems, actually... Uh, are, are, interestingly, content. It doesn't mean they're not suffering. They just have a different way to process the fears they have. Because they've understood that they are secure in Christ. These folk over here probably know it in their head, but it doesn't really come out of their hands and their hearts because they're so afraid. They're so afraid. Well, in our, in our work, and we'll say more about this uh, as we go, but in our work, this naming of this continuum helps us understand politics quite a bit uh, in our churches. Because the more fearful you are, the more blame-based reaction, alienation, defensive, the more, I mean, uh, you, just, you just get tired holding your arms up like this, don't you? an anxious system, you just can't afford to put your arms down. Because if you do, you get killed. So you keep your arms up to, to keep yourself away and keep everybody else away. Because this is all you can afford. Like, this is literally all you can afford <laughs> when you're negotiating. But what a difference it makes when you go palms up. You see the difference? 
See the difference? You see, this, this, this posture represents both reception and offering. There's no fear when my palms are up. You see? There's all kinds of fear when my palms are out. Point. Yes, sir. It's very, 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 very possible to have an outstanding, put-together theology and have a very anxious system. I feel like I should pray. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> a couple more background slides, a couple more foundation slides here. This is, this is um, thinking about systems generationally. Just take a moment to look through. Each has a value statement, an appeal, and a question. This is obviously not exhaustive, but it is representative, I think, of what's happening again in our generational moment. resonating? If you're a boomer, you're still here. And if you're a boomer, you're not going to go out quietly. I should say, we won't go out quietly. I should include myself. Okay? Because we've been doing this for so long, especially this part, that we're having a hard time doing some of this. Remember what I said about young people trying to figure out how they fit and how they can contribute? A lot of this is about generational realities. A lot of it is about cultural realities, because some of what happens when you talk about politics and ministry, say, for, uh, for cultures in which filial piety is reality, uh, that has a, whole different kind of <laughs> has a whole different kind of thing going on here about taking care of seniors and elders and so forth. The boomer, some of you heard me say before, so the boomer says to this person, because the boomers occupy mostly sort of like here, they want these people to get a work ethic. And these people want these people to get a life. Because <laughs> these people have made work their life. These people are determined not to make work their life. Well, welcome to the politics of ministry. Like, why don't, why don't you show up in time, dear assistant pastor? Uh, because I was with my family. Unlike you, uh, here's the parenthesis, unlike you, senior pastor, who needs to be with his family a little bit more often because you sacrificed them on the altar of ministry. That's sort of the parenthesis, isn't it? Now we're talking about the politics of ministry. We're talking about people who could understand one another but have a, hard, have a hard time getting beyond sort of these assumptions about choices and life stage and so forth. Here's a quick summary from Resilient Ministry. Here are the five themes that we discovered in our research. And as I said, the politics book basically focuses in on basically focuses in on the fifth theme. Think systems, watch process. Welcome the gifted body of Christ. Cultivate their vocational power. Cultivate allies and confidants. That, that's, what, that's what this new book is about. It's about this stuff right here. Because our experience was, both sort of cumulatively, personally, collectively, was this, is this continues to be the biggest surprise, as I said earlier, to those in pastoral ministry. They're gifted, they're confirmed, they're affirmed, they're sent off, they come back, they go to ministry, and they just go, wow, what in the world is happening at these meetings and these interests and money and, oh my goodness, why didn't they tell me this in seminary? Well, we do tell you this in seminary, but usually you don't have a context, so you can say, well, I'll learn that when I get there. And boy, do we all ever, don't we? Don't we ever. Bob's own study, you can talk more about this if you want, but Bob's own study in his PhD work discovered as far back as the 30s, this has been the biggest surprise to people going into pastoral ministry. Just this reality right here. All of this. And all of the temptations 
and all the foolishness that comes with unhealthy practices over here. As some of you have heard us talk about when we talked about resilient ministry and what, it, what does it take, you've heard us say, it would go well with you to ask yourself, do a little diagnostic and say, how, how are we doing personally, family-wise and so forth? What, what are the healthy patterns I want to maintain in the Lord's kindness? What are the unhealthy patterns I need to address? Who are my talking partners? What, where can we find folk? This is, a, this is one of the keys right here, allies and confidants. If anybody, but if a pastor mistakes an ally for a confidant, the, the pastor will be out of the church that they currently pastor pretty quickly. You only have about this many confidants really across your whole life. And if you mistake an ally for one of these people, they can't take it. They can't take the weight of what you share with them. Hmm. And so you're, you're, you're telling them something in confidence, and you're telling something that's just your deepest, darkest, whatever, and they can't take it, so they tell somebody else. And pretty soon they tell somebody else. And pretty soon you're looking for a new church. That happens all the time. Pastor's wife that we had in one of our groups in our study said, I have a great Bible study, and I love all the women in my Bible study, but I can't tell the women in my Bible study how to pray for me all the time. She said, imagine me going in there and telling my husband wants to leave the church and to pray for me. Allies versus confidants. One last thing about this. Um, uh, this allies and confidants thing. Um, uh, see up here under self-care. Here's the simple thing. Do you want to die? Isolate yourself. Do you want to live? Connect. I mean, there, there. That was like seven, ten years worth of research, right? <laughs> oh, who, do you, who do you connect to? That was exhausting. But really, that's the summary. Isolate, death. Connect, life. And, that, and there's the problem. I mean, there's the conundrum, right? Because we just said, be careful who you... You have allies and confidants. So, so basically, the takeaway is it's really, really hard, if not impossible, to have confidants within your own system. You desperately need to connect, but you connect in different ways with different folk in your own system, different ways people outside your system, and so do your family members. And that, that, I would say that's the, that's the tension right there. That's the tension. That's a real tension. And we just keep discovering it over and over and over again all these years that we've been talking with folk about this. That tension right there. And, and, and a lot of that tension, if not, I don't know, maybe, maybe all that tension is this stuff. Is this stuff. Because where do you go when you have to process the crazy thing that happened today? You believe people can change, don't you? You, you believe Philippians 1, 6, don't you? He who began a good work. And we believe that, don't we? Well, we believe that most of the time. Except there's that person right now in your mind. Yeah, I believe people can change and be changed by the Holy Spirit, except for fill, fill in the blank with the person in your head right now. Prayed for them, I meet with them, I meet with them, I pray for them, I meet with them, and they don't change, and Philippians 1, 6, and right here. So it's all on the ground here. That's a little background. Bob's going to take us through uh, kind of the guts of the chapters, uh, some uh, uh, definitions, some of the outline, and so forth. So the politics of ministry. Um, a summation of the book is, is negotiating interests in relationships of power. And each, that, 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 that one sentence, you take different parts of that, and those are the ingredients that we deal with on a daily basis when we're dealing with the politics of ministry. Politics is the art of getting things done with others. And you say, well, that's not what I see when I turn on Fox News or MSNBC. This is, this is a second definition of politics. This isn't the underhanded, smoke-filled room necessarily politics that you're thinking about when you think about Capitol Hill. This is just the art of being able to get things done with other people. And it's what we do every day. It's what you do in your home with your family. 
If you have a three-month-old, they, the, they know how to get the, the art of getting things done. Okay? Okay? They, they are engaged in the politics of family. Okay? Power is the capacity to act or influence. Now listen, you can get off on all kinds of philosophical discussions about power. Authority, power, all these different things. We could talk about that until you're blue in the face, but to boil it down to the reality of where we are in the church and what we deal with on a weekly basis, the power is the capacity to act or influence. He talked about Mrs. Smith. How does she have so much power? More power in the church than the senior pastor. Okay? How did she get that power? If you look at the Gospels, the, the Jews are asking that question all the time about Jesus. Where did he get this kind of authority and power? And they're afraid to arrest him because of the connections he had with the people. That gives you an inclination of where the power came from. Okay? Uh, there's two chapters that just introduce in the book that introduce the, the idea of politics. There's one whole chapter on power and where it comes from and how you get it and how you can lose it very easily. Interests are the goals, values, expectations, predispositions that lead a person to act in one direction or another. That's a long word. But interests basically are the things that motivate you. They're the things that excite you. They're the things that you are convicted about. We have actually three different chapters in the book on identifying and understanding your own interests and the interests of others. Because we have individual interests. We don't understand a lot of them, but we have them. We have organizational interests. And boy, when you walked into the church where you serve, you discovered over a period of days and weeks organizational interests that you never heard about when you were candidating. Okay? And they often have nothing to do with theology and nothing to do with the gospel. But they have to do with the, the, the organizational interests that the people have in the church. And then... The third area of interest is societal interests. Every church is embedded in a particular societal context. And you'll understand if you move from a church from Florida up to Seattle, Washington, that there's a whole different set of societal interests in those different environments. Okay? And so we have a chapter in, in each one of those areas to work on identifying what interests are, to seek to understand them in yourself, and to seek to understand them in others. Because if you don't understand the interests, you're not going to understand what you're negotiating. Okay? Negotiation, then, becomes the capacity to confer, bargain, or discuss with a view to reaching and understanding others. We have two whole chapters on that whole issue of negotiation and the kinds of choices that you make in the process of negotiation. Now, we're going to give you a taste of the choice process to this little negotiation strategy. So what you see here is here's the interest side. And this is a little bit simplistic, and yet it often falls out this way. You'll have shared interests with folks, and you'll have conflicting interests. Okay? And these interests, like I said, these interests can be around biblical, godly themes. They, they can be around personal themes of convictions and ideas and what I like and don't like. They can have organizational aspects to them. Okay? So, for example, I have a I know of a particular church where every staff member who came into the church was told, you will leave your, your office every day with your blinds and your windows at a 45 degree angle. Now, I can't find that in the book of hesitations. Okay? But that was an interest that the senior pastor had to make sure that there was this look on the church when people drove by. Okay? And it has nothing to do with biblical and theological views, but it is a, is a significant interest. Okay? Churches where you have a, a particular interest in the way that you dress or don't dress. Okay? Those have nothing to do with a biblical conviction necessarily, but they are part of the system. Then, in the context, you have power dynamics. You have equal power and unequal power. Okay? And again, Donald brought that up. Mrs. Smith, in the church has this tremendous amount of power. Whenever a decision is being made in the church, the people tend to go to Mrs. Smith and ask her what her opinion is. She's never been on the board of elders or the board of deacons because it's a PCA church. There's no women around doing that. But everybody goes to Mrs. Smith and asks her what her opinion is. She has more relational power in the church than the senior pastor who has all the formal or organizational power. But let me tell you, in the long run, Relational power will beat formal power in the long run, all the time. 
Okay? I'll never forget the time I heard in the hallway in the church I was serving, one of the other staff members was talking to somebody and they said, you'll do it, you'll do it my way because I went to seminary and I am ordained. He literally said that. Trying to use formal authority in a situation where he really was lacking relational authority. Okay? So when you have these, this acrostic, what happens is, if you have shared interests and equal power, then you're, you're walking in, in, in daisies together. And you just collaborate together. You don't even, even know you're negotiating because you're, just, you're all in agreement together. Okay? When you have shared interests and unequal power, well, the people who have less power go to the people with more power and network with them to try to promote what their interests are. When you have equal power and conflicting interests, the choice often, by the way, you can have multiple choices in each one of these areas, but these are ones we find that are dominant. You bargain together. You come together and you say, okay, if this is the way you want it, this is what I want, and, and let's see how we can work this thing out. Because if there's shared interest and equal power, nobody has the capacity to force their way. Then you have cell four with a whole range of possibilities. That's the, that's the cell where you have, go back one more time, Donald. Okay. That's where you have conflicting interests and unequal power. Do a quick study of the Gospels and ask yourself this question. Which cell does Jesus spend most of his time in? And you'll discover that he's in cell four with conflicting interests and unequal power dynamics a vast amount of the time. Ask yourself this question. Where do I find myself in my church? What cell do I find myself in? A significant amount of the time. Okay, Donald. These are a spectrum of the capacities you have in cell four. The reason we spend a great deal of time on cell four in the book is because that's where many, many of us find ourselves living, whether we know it or not. In cell four, you're either in a situation where you have less power or where you have more power. And we would suggest that there's a continuum of action that you can take, okay? In, a, in, in, in particular situations, all the way from being passive and giving up, if you have less power, all the way up to counteracting in an aggressive form and taking action. Now, this is people with less power. Okay, so I was, I was talking to a pastor a while back who was in a situation where um, he felt like there were things in the context of the church that were really unhealthy and sick, and he had to make a decision. Do I go to Presbytery and report these things, or do I, or do I resign? Okay? He was with less power. He had, he had choices to make, or somewhere between the two. Or do I just put up and shut up and suffer? Okay? When you have more power, you also are on a spectrum of decision processing here. From the passive of abdicating and giving up all the way to the most aggressive, and that's being dominant authoritarian, my way or the highway. Again, how much time do we actually take to think about the choices that we're making when we're negotiating interests in the context of our work? We don't usually even know we're doing it, but we're in the process of doing it. And many of us, when we find ourselves in difficult in that self-worth situation, without even thinking about it, consider the, the actions that we would take along these spectrums. Okay? Now, we just summarized about nine chapters of the book, okay? So you have to dive into that to get more detail, but that gives you a flavor, all right? Now, these are key questions that are diagnostic questions for you, and you, you've got, if you have the handout, you'll find that we give you these diagnostic questions as well. And we would encourage you to stop and think about these questions when you're facing issues and challenges Disagreements in the context of your day-to-day -day ministry. Who are the stakeholders in this situation? Donald, define stakeholder for me. Uh, a person or a group with an interest in a context. A person and an or outcome. Group. They're, they're, they're in a group, they're in a context, and they have an interest for a particular outcome. So, and and they, also could be, uh, they also could be representing. 
So, so one of the questions we, we ask folk when we counsel people all the time is not just who's at the table, but who represents people who aren't at the table. Make sense? That's a huge question to ask in your own system. In fact, that's one of the diagnostic questions we encourage you to take home and think about very carefully. Who, who represents whom at what tables? Okay, so here's an example. Uh, my old boss from Perimeter Church is back there, John Purcell. He's doing a seminar tomorrow morning. You really ought to go here at 8 o'clock in the morning. Wave, John. Okay. John and I were in, in a management team meeting. I, I remember this clearly, John. We were in a management team meeting at Perimeter Church, and an issue came up about a, 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 I can't remember what the issue was, but it conflicted with something going on in the youth ministry. Okay? And our youth minister was there, and um, we came to the conclusion. We said, well, listen, we need to do, take this particular action. And the youth minister said, yeah, that's what we need to do. We all agreed together on the management team, that's what we need to do. We never talked to the rest of the people in the youth ministry. We never talked to the rest of the team. We assumed that the youth minister was representing his people well, or he understood what their interests were. He came back next week to that meeting, and he said, guys, he said, we got an issue here. I went back to the team, and I told them what our decision was, and they gave me about 10 reasons why that decision really was bad. So we need to, to, to come back. Well, you see, that's a situation where the interests of the people who were really impacted by the decision, their interests weren't being represented well at the table. See how, how that works? So ask yourselves, who are the stakeholders? And are all the people who are sitting at this table making decisions, are all the interests being represented there? I'll tell you a quick story. So here's my senior pastor. He's right here. Well, here's my wife, by the way. Today's our 36th anniversary. Hey! Uh, there's nothing like coming to GA for your anniversary. I'm telling you. Woo, it's better than the honeymoon. Yeah. Um, I don't know. So Bo and I, while we've been here, got a, an email, right, about worship stuff, changes. I'm in the session, Bo's pastor, and Bo responded beautifully. Here's what he didn't say. Uh, Dear Deacon, it was Deacon, mind your own business. I got this. See, because Mark's a, a stakeholder that we love and care for who, who just wanted to talk about changes. An anxious, in an anxious system, actually, Bo would have said something like, mind your own business, Deacon. We got this. This is my thing. Butt out. But he would have said it in a loving Christ-like way, of course. <laughs> but that, that, that's, where, that's where this stuff lands. Yeah, I so... Mean, that's, that's just, why we just keep identifying and naming okay. and knowing who the stakeholders are and what their interests are, which is really the next question. What are the probable interests of each stakeholder? Why is Jane acting that way? What is going on with her? Well, what are her interests? Okay? Now you say, well, this sounds so simplistic. But we don't do it. I, have, I don't do it. It's easier to write about this stuff than to do it. Okay? Third, how will those interests be represented during the negotiation process? Will they be quiet, not say anything? Will they, will, they make a, will they make a fight? How are they going to negotiate those interests? And then this last one comes down to some of the ethics. To what degree are we serving the welfare of God's church and the redemption of his world over our selfish interests? How could we align our interests with those of Jesus Christ? Do you remember that passage in Philippians 2 where Paul says, everybody else has their own agenda, but I'm so grateful that Timothy has the interest of Christ. Yeah. And let me tell you something. How often in the church a person is standing up for their interests and fighting tooth and nail because they are absolutely convinced that these are the interests of Christ. But they may have nothing to do with what Christ's interests are. Okay. One of the helpful things we, we found over the years is, is just taking uh, pastors and ministry leaders through a re reflection on the question, what are the interests of Jesus Christ? That's very fruitful. Really encourage you all to do that uh, as you have this conversation. What are the interests of Jesus Christ uh, based on that, uh, those comments in Philippians uh, from Paul? So we want to take a, just a few moments and take a look at a passage of Scripture and ask these questions. Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, very familiar. 
I'm just going to read it out loud, and we're going to do this as a, as a full group, okay? And then we're going to move into a, a, a church case study. So this is going to be pretty quick, but let's just do this and, and look at some pieces here. Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so they may accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save or to kill? But they were silent. He looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Okay, out loud, who are some of the stakeholders you see in the story? Pharisees, Herodians, Jesus, the man with the withered hand, the crowd, Satan, Jesus, God the Father. Good. How about probable interest? Let's just take some of the key stakeholders. Share with me what you think is a, is a key interest of the Herodians. Maintain power. What kind of power? Political power because they're aligned with Herod and the Roman government. How about the Pharisees? What is an interest that they might have? Yeah, interpretate the proper interpretation of the law as they understood it. Good. How about the man with the withered hand? What do you think an interest he might have? Hmm? To be healed. That's assuming that he actually came into the synagogue wanting to be healed, which is, may or may not be the case. Okay? Okay? How about Jesus? What, they, what interest does Jesus have? Hmm? Glory of God? What did you say? Glory of God? How about representing the kingdom of God here on earth? Okay? Good. So you hit those quickly. That's very good. By the way, he also wants to subvert the interests of the devil, the world of flesh and the devil. Jesus is very, we say, gospel savvy. He's very gospel subversive, to which we should all say amen. Uh, his whole life and ministry is all about undermining one kingdom and establishing another. Go ahead. You could think about that for a while. Okay. How do they represent their interests in, in the negotiation process? Let me just ask you this question. How did the Herodians and the Pharisees, what negotiation method did they choose to negotiate their interests? Exactly what you're doing now. Silence. Just because people aren't speaking up doesn't mean they don't have interests. Because that was one method, silence. But what else did they do to negotiate their interests? They did it apart from some of the stakeholders. They pulled off and they found people who would align with their interests. The Herodians and the Pharisees got together. And by the way, you know the Herodians and the Pharisees never got together. But because they had a common area of interest to destroy Jesus, that pulled them together. Common interests pulled together stakeholders that you never would expect it would come together. Okay? And what's their, what is the action that they want to take? They want to destroy Jesus. Okay. That just gives you an idea of how interests are being represented or not represented. at the How about Jesus? How did he represent the interests of God? What are a couple of things he did? Yes, but he did it in a particular way. He asked a question. Okay? He asked a question. He paused. He invited interaction. Okay? He also managed his emotions well. That's a whole other story. Okay? You see how it works? But, and by, then, the way, by the way, who, for whose benefit does Jesus ask questions? Is he ignorant? Do you remember there's a thousand questions in the Bible? You know who asks most of them? God. What, is he dumb? Does he not know? Is he uninformed? Was he out to lunch? No, no. You can learn a lot about asking questions in the negotiation process by looking particularly, I would say, at the example of Lord Jesus. Because it's, it's always, it's always, in every case, 
because he knows what's going on. He knows the hearts of folk. We can't ascribe motive to folk. Jesus knows our motives. He goes right for them. He always is giving you an opportunity to confess him as Lord and follow him. Even the Pharisees, maybe even especially the Pharisees. It's his negotiation process is just a wonder to be, like, of course it is. It is a wonder to behold. And if he asks questions, where does that leave us? What can we learn from that? Okay, we're going to go to another case, a real case in a real church. Donald, why don't you take this one over? Brad Anderson. Do you have a, do you have a, do you have a handout? Read in a pastoral way. In your pastoral, sonoral voice. The first three paragraphs, please. This would be the time when you do it out loud, actually. Police. You. Let's go ahead. I'll be Jeremy, just a second, just for dramatic effect. Uh, no, I haven't done anything about planning the reception, Pastor Paul. It isn't my job, as a matter of fact, and I do not really want to do program planning at Trinity. This is not what I signed up for. This is the kind of thing Sherry does, not me. You sound, a, you sound like you know what you're saying. I was feeling something. Sherry, say something. Jeremy, it's no problem. I will take care of your reception planning, but I might need a little of your help. Sherry. <laughs> you, come on. Sherry, I have my own big event coming up, and I, I will see what I can do to be available, but I doubt if I can be of much help. I mean, you know, my event is also important in the life of Trinity. Do I really have a choice? At this point, Pastor Paul stopped the meeting and told the staff he would discuss the matter privately with Jeremy, aka probably not with the choice. Everyone returned to their offices somewhat confused. You know why this is a spectacular case? Because it's very ordinary. There's nothing spectacular about this at all. There's nothing I made up. This is a real case. This is real, real people, different names, real church. Yes? Some of you are thinking lots of things. We need a family of the year. Yeah, you need a family of the year. Yeah, that's your takeaway, right? We need a family of the year. <laughs> You're thinking, praise God, this won't happen to me because it's already happened to them. Well, I don't know. Who are the stakeholders here? Besides everybody, that's always the right answer. But you see their interests? You see every, everybody's negotiating their interests here? How's Jeremy negotiating, in addition to passively aggressively, because he's frustrated? How's he negotiating? What are his interests? Jeremy's actually a key member of the team. If he'd only be, remember my slide about those young folk, they want to just, would somebody listen to me? Like I might have something to contribute. They would never listen to him. They would just wouldn't listen. He'd have all these things to contribute, and they'd just say, you know what, why don't you just pat, pat you on the head, and why don't you just go to your corner? Why don't you just sit down? So when he blew up, it, it had just been building and building and building to this meeting. All, all Pastor Paul wanted was a report. Hey, how's it going? I'll tell you how it's going. What? What's happening? 
Think about who's representing whom. This is just the staff. Some of you have staff, some of you don't have staff. Some of you are on a staff, some of you are the staff. But put, put your own folk name, put your names of your folk in here, whether they be paid staff or unpaid staff or volunteers or members or whoever. I, th I think we can identify with the, some of the dynamics, some of the frustrations, some of the opportunities, some of, some of Sherry stepping in just to try to be a peacemaker. Because that, that became her sort of role as the escalation between Jeremy and Pastor Paul went up and up and up and got hotter and hotter. Now, here's the question. Look at number four. Do you have hope for these real people? Like, of course you do. Of course you do. But what's it going to take to get from where they are in their anxiety to some sort of true gospel health? How are they going to honor one another? How are they going to come to one another with the love of Christ and, and work this out? Not just for this moment, but how could that be a pattern for them as they continue to work together? Put your name in here. Put your name in wherever, with whomever you can identify. What are you doing to contribute to the anxiety in your system? What are you doing to contribute to the gospel health in your system, friends? Who are the folk that you need to go to and, and make a long account a short one? This is so much easier, isn't it, to say, I know, I know who need to get their act together. Well, if so-and-so would just blah, 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 instead of right here, start right here, and say, who am I in this situation before the face of God? Who do I need to speak to, pray for, meet with, negotiate with? with all the love of Christ. You know, this, this, this would just be interesting if the stakes weren't so high. <laughs> all the stuff we've discovered and researched all these years, it's, it's, I mean, it's interesting. And it would just stay there if it wasn't our life, every day. And the people that God has entrusted to our care. And the kingdom of God. If it wasn't for all that, it would just be interesting. It would just merely be interesting. Let me just throw one little Go thing ahead. in here. When, when, um, when Pastor Paul, at the very end, the last two sentences, when Pastor Paul stopped the meeting and told the staff he would discuss the matter privately with Jeremy, mm -hmm. what had happened is, is think, of a, think of a hand grenade, somebody pulling out the pin, throwing the pin in the middle of the staff meeting, and, and the hand grenade going off. And all the shrapnel had hit everybody in the room. And now Pastor Paul says, be warm and well-fed. I'll take care of Jeremy. What do you think the condition of the staff is going to be when they greet each other in the, in the halls the next day? Brittle. Hmm? Brittle. Brittle at best. Anxious, confused, system. What would you suggest that, well, if you were counseling pastor, the pastor here, what would you suggest how he handles that? Yeah. Really? He should not have put an expectation on someone that they did not agree to. That's that's one answer. Anybody else have any other suggestions? How about what question would you ask him? Go to the question. Go ahead. You you were already going to say something. Would you ask him a question? Could you ask him a question to help clarify what he's thinking about? Yeah, go ahead. I was going to point out Jeremy stated that he had his own invention plan, but he just said, I don't do that. It's not my job. And then turned around and said, but I have my own that I'm going to do. Right. Is that a hint? I'd suggest that the health of the staff takes precedence at that point over anything else, and you stop and you take time to work through the mess that's just happened so that when people walk out of the room, they're not confused. At least they understand what's happening and how different people are feeling. Yes, it becomes 
a therapy session for the entire staff. It's a family therapy session. Part, part of the problem in the real case is that Pastor Paul is an insecure peacekeeper. He's an insecure peacekeeper. He's not a peacemaker, he's a peacekeeper. He's insecure. He's fearful. This is what he does. This is what he does. Praise the Lord, he reached out for help because <laughs> he realized that uh, just lots of stuff wasn't going well. But that, that's the real life case. I mean, this is ongoing. This is not resolved at all. This is just a snapshot of this church's struggle right now uh, that we're trying to help with. So we have just, what, two more minutes? Two minutes. Uh, comments, observations, questions can help clarify. We talked about a little bit of the background. We talked about the, kind of the guts of, of the work itself and maybe how to use uh, the book and a little, just a little bit of, of applying in the case. Yeah. I'd say that you. I'd say you. You answered your own question. I'd say you. You take a piece and you just work it, and go deep instead of wide for a while. And don't don't. There's no reason to be in a hurry. I mean, take one of the key concepts and just work it with your folk, with your leadership, until until the language you have common language, and you sort of share understanding. Uh, in our experience, that's what that's what has been most fruitful. And 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 for me, for for me personally. I just ask myself, the, the two, who are the stakeholders and what are, what are their interests? What are my interests? What are their interests? What are the interests of Christ? I just begin with those questions. Because what, what I find myself doing, Donald's the greatest question, questioner in the world that I know. Okay, But what I find myself doing, and pastors generally aren't this way, but I go in there and I start talking. I need to shut up and ask questions and seek to understand what the interests are and seek to understand why, are this, why is this their interest. I'd actually teach people how to do case studies in the educational ministry of the church. I mean, if I had to say one thing, that's what I'd do. Because it's a familiar medium. It's one click away from your reality. Uh, pretty soon they start seeing themselves, and now you're talking. I mean, for, from a teaching equipping standpoint, it's really effective. But wait a minute, we can't do a case study in a session meeting because we have an agenda we have to take care of. Oh boy. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> oh yeah, lots. Yeah, $25 a piece, you can just. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually, that, that's maybe one of the next projects is to try to develop a, like a case. But there are probably 10 cases in, in, the, in the politics book that you can use. Yeah, Bo. Well, so if someone wanted to exchange money for a written form of that be available here at General Assembly? <laughs> <laughs> they could go to, to do that? See me at home. <laughs> There's the IBM. Oh, I'm setting you all up. Like, the both CEMP Bookstore as well as InterVarsity Presses, uh, they yes, both, thank they you. both are selling it. Thank you. Go ahead. <laughs> and Amazon. We go really, really slowly on the way to council. That's way down here. Lots of questions and lots of listening on the way, way down here to more questions, actually, onto a possible way forward. It's uh, wonderful when they identify themselves, what their interests are, and, and how they're doing it. Yeah, especially those in the anxious system that, that are either tired of it or realize it's just foolishness. I mean, now you can really talk. It usually takes a catastrophe to get them to that point, unfortunately. Uh, but the healthy places that want to do diagnostic work on the way to stay healthy, I mean, that's tremendous. That's great. Hey, it's, it's, uh, it's a little after, quarter after. Thank you for your attention and Don't, don't think the crisis in your church are, not, are out of God's control. Yeah, absolutely. Lots God of hope. designed crisis. Thank you. Blessings.
You can hear more talks like this by subscribing to the Gifts and Graces podcast. You can also hear more content like this by attending a seminar at General Assembly. They're free and open to the public. Find out times and locations by visiting pcaga.org. Thanks for listening to Gifts and Graces.